I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Hevin David, who is the Labour Assembly Member for Caerphilly. Tell us a bit about your background, Kevin. Um, my political background, or my, my personal, personal background, background well, I suppose they're, they're intertwined in some ways. You know, I, I, I grew up involved in politics. I grew up in uh, a village very close to Bargoid in the Caerphilly constituency. I was born in Caerphilly Miners, just had a regular upbringing, but sort of flavoured with politics. My father was a, a local councillor on Romney Valley District Council, Labour councillor. And I suppose the only difference that, that my upbringing had to any of my friends was I used to go out delivering leaflets with him um, when he stand for election from probably about the age of five or six, going around uh, canvassing. Uh, but he was also the head teacher in my local school, my primary school, and that was an interesting experience. Uh, very much part of the community, my father, and he's still a councillor today. And he wasn't always a, a Labour candidate, was he? Yeah, he stood, stood as an independent in 2005, 2005 2006 for Caerphilly County Borough Council. 2004, was it? 2004, yeah, okay. So it, it, it was around that time, yeah. And he, he stood as a, an independent councillor uh, with a friend of his, uh, and he won, and he became uh, an independent councillor. And then, sadly, he was a very good friend, uh, Keith Derrick, his running mate. Keith was massively popular in the community, um, former member of the Labour Party, and Keith passed away. And Keith always said, when I stand down, I'd really like you to stand in my place, to me. Um, when Keith died, I went to the local Labour Party, which I was involved with. I was involved with Labour then. I did vote for my dad, but I was involved with the Labour Party. And I said I'd like to be the Labour candidate. And I stood and I won. And three months later, I persuaded my dad to rejoin the Labour Party, and he did. And he's been part of the Labour Party ever since. So what was it about the Labour Party that attracted you? I mean, obviously, it was in your family already. How old were you when you were really conscious about politics? This sounds really geeky, but I remember my dad picking me up from infant school. I remember standing outside his office in the primary school when he said to me that Michael Foote was no longer leader of the Labour Party. So that was in 1983, uh, and I would have been six years old. So that's my first memory. And I remember thinking, I quite like Michael Foote. I thought he was pretty good. <laughs> you know, so that's how much I knew about electoral success in those days. You know, we grew up in, in the South Wales Valley during the miners' strike. Um, and I remember, I remember clearly, absolutely clearly, friends of mine who had dinner tickets. And the reason they had free school meals at that point was because their parents were on strike and they weren't earning money. And I remember the real division that happened in our community around that time um, and my dad being a counsellor I remember us going around trying to help people the concern that he'd bring home because he'd be seeing it in school with with the kids uh, who, whose parents were on strike and also more widely in the community in which we lived and you know I couldn't be anything else other than Labour growing up in, in that in those times. And then you went on to Cardiff University? Yeah I, I stayed, stayed local, um, lived at home, went to Cardiff University, studied economics and politics and then did a master's degree in uh, European politics. So, in fact, what you were doing was pursuing the interests that you've had in the community onto a more academic yeah, level. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I've always been fascinated by politics. And I remember um, one of the, the lecturers uh, who's still there, Professor Peter Dory, fantastic lecturer. I remember them being very proud that one of the uh, uh, master's students had gone on to be an assembly member, and that was Jonathan Morgan. Um, so he'd gone on to be Conservative Assembly Member for Cardiff North. Um, and I remember thinking, well, that sounds like an interesting thing to do. 
I thought I'll never be that. I'll never. I'll, I'll never be good enough to be an assembly member. I thought, but that sounds interesting. You then, I think, made a decision effectively to become a bit of an academic, didn't you? Because you did a PhD. Yeah. Well, what, what actually happened was I applied for a job as a researcher. Do you know what I did? I applied for a job as a political person here in the assembly uh, to the Labour group, and I didn't get it. And it's the best thing that ever happened to me not getting that job because I became a researcher in, uh, in what was then Newport University and through that became a, a lecturer uh, two years later and, and, and did a PGCE in post-compulsory education training. It was the best thing I ever did. Getting into teaching was just wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. Um, and then they funded me to do my PhD. So I did my PhD while I was working. It's incredibly hard. I remember the last few years of doing that, I was going in at weekends to, to write it up. Really hard work. But it was such an opportunity that was given to me by, by the university. And then I went on to Cardiff Met, and they finished the funding as well, so they funded part of it. What was your thesis about? The first employment decision of owner-managers, which sounds really boring, but actually it was about why do owner-managers become employers? That's what it started. Why would a small business owner employ anyone? But then it became... Why, what's the point in employing anyone when you don't need to? So the title of the thesis was The Reluctant Employer. Because what you find is most owner-managers, if they can avoid it, will avoid employing. And there are different things you can do instead of employing people. Almost universally, if you speak to someone who started a firm, they talk about their business as we and us. We do this. Our firm, our company, we. But on, very often, they don't employ anybody and they're on their own. And what they're talking about is their, their entity is part of themselves. And if you say, well, who helps you? Very often they say, oh, my mum or my, my wife or my husband or my, my son or my brother. These people are helping or my sister or my, you know, my, my daughter are helping me run the firm. And that's the kind of way that people start their ventures. And then they start to work collaboratively with each other, different firms working with each other. Even then you can avoid employment. And, and generally those firms avoid employment and make a perfectly successful living out of it. And yet, at a time when, as we know, inward investment is more and more fraught, aren't we going to have to rely as a Welsh economy more and more on SMEs, you know, small and medium-sized enterprises, and the sort of people that you're talking about, don't we really need to get them into a mindset where they are going to be prepared to employ people? Well, there's a whole debate about the proportion of, of SMEs in, and, and, the, and the role they play in job creation. Some would argue that they play a big role in job creation. Others would say, actually, the number of jobs they create are matched by the number of jobs lost. So therefore, job creation in the SME sector is fairly stable. What we, are, a backbench group of us, started looking at this concept as a foundational economy when we were first elected. And what we were talking about was those, those firms that are, that are there always, how do they interact with each other? I said when I was campaigning to be elected, I don't want small firms to be the engine of employment. I don't want us to be talking about them being the backbone of the economy as if they've got some role that they must play uh, in, in government policy. Small firms exist. And what I'd like to see is make it easier for them to exist, easier for them to interact with each other. So small firms, I interviewed a guy for my PhD thesis who, who serviced hospital equipment, the mechanical stuff. He didn't know a great deal about the new emerging electronics at the time. And he got a friend of his who did know about the electronics to take that aspect of the work on. 
and they shared the, the, the money they made amongst themselves. And then it expanded across uh, lots of different businesses. So, so we don't have to be talking about getting people into employment, but enabling people to work for themselves where they want to. I'll never forget the time I was having the bathroom done. And I asked local business to, to come and do it. It was a, a one person uh, to, to come and fit the shower. One day I came downstairs and he was already at work. And in the, in the bathroom there were three other people. And I said, what's going on? He said, oh, well, this is the tiler. This is the electrician. Uh, this guy knows more about plastering than I do, so he's going to do some plastering for me over there. They, they, they kind of got together as this web, worked collaboratively, and then split, split off again. Now, I think when it comes to things like the Welsh Housing Quality Standard, you can do that on a bigger scale. And you don't have to worry too much about whether these firms are, are employing 50, 100, 200 people. You are enabling your local community to work on local community work. And for me, that's what the foundational economy means. Local jobs and local businesses working collaboratively. To what degree do they need to have somebody up above them directing them what to do or offering advice? I think it's, it's probably patronising to think that you need to direct what, what, what these businesses are doing. A lot of it is organic. You know, we talk about supply chains, when in fact what we see a lot of are supply webs. You know, it's much more of a web, an interconnected group of people working together. I met with um, the procurement service at Caffili Council, and Professor Kevin Morgan says Caffili Council's procurement service is one of the best in Wales. So I met, met with uh, Liz Lucas there in Caffili Council, and she said, uh, as head of procurement, she said that um, we want to give contracts to these groups of people, and if there's anything we can help them with, is helping them collaborate, and showing that the benefit of collaboration brings profits in the long term. Even if in the short term, you might be sharing a bit of your work out with other people. In the long term, you're then collectively able to bid for more contracts in the future. And I think the trick will be sustaining those contracts over a long term. Chris, I suppose the Conservative with a small c uh, way of looking at uh, this kind of procurement really is to say what we want is to have a select list of tenderers, companies that are already established, yeah. we know who they are. Yeah. But that excludes... Yes. The kind of people you're talking about. Well, well, what often happens is you get a big company from elsewhere, comes in, subcontracts the work, takes a big chunk of the profit and goes off again. And that, and that doesn't keep the, the money local. Certainly local companies will benefit to an extent, but, but it doesn't create any long-term sustainable benefit to the community. Whereas if you're able to create these collaborative supply webs, then yeah, you can keep that money in the community. It's a massive challenge and it's riskier than, than going with a big company. But I think in, in the long term, it provides greater benefits. And that's, that's the work that the, the Welsh Government are looking at at the moment. Going back a bit, mm. at what stage did you decide that you would... Well, you stood for the council, didn't yeah. you, because you were helping your father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, in your council work, which direction did you see yourself going? Well, it's difficult to pinpoint the time. But one of the things that was in my mind was, I can't sustain... Being a, a, a councillor and I was chair of the Policy and Resources Scrutiny Committee and being an academic, if the longer it goes on, the, the less attention you pay to each. You, know, you, you can only do one of those things really well over a period of time. Or, or, or you know, do, do the councillor role as a backbench role without taking on any extra responsibilities. So really I had to decide. And, and when I decided uh, to, be an assembly, or to, to stand to be a candidate, to try and be a candidate, was when Jeff Cuthbert told our general committee that he was standing down. And I thought, well, I'll have a go and see if they want me. And they did, after a campaign. Because the first time I met you, uh, Heaven, was a few years before that. And, uh, I mean, it seems in the dim past now, but 
it was only, I think it would be 2012, because it was the time when the now highly controversial senior officers' pay scandal began in Philly. I was the guy who got the leak about it yep. in the first place. And I'm glad you did. Thank you. So I got the leak, uh, which said there'd been this secret meeting, which mm. was held. Mm. The vast majority of councillors didn't know anything about this. I should say this point, I didn't know anything about it. No, no. It was, I read it in the Western Mail. Right, okay. We do have some uses. <laughs> so a huge pay rise were awarded, mm. most notably to the chief mm. executive of the council. Mm. Um, and then after that story was written... There was a massive uproar, wasn't there, within yeah, the county borough about the circumstances because there was a contrast between the way in which these um, very senior managers had been treated by the council in terms of being given massive inflation-busting pay rises and the pay freeze that the ordinary workers were having. It was one of those extraordinary moments where you saw a lot of people coming together out of anger mm. and focusing on something which was happening locally because very often you don't get that, do you? I mean, we're, we're no longer in a time where everyone has a massive interest in what's going on at the local yeah. council. But on this occasion, it was something which seemed to spark people's imagination. And they're not in a good uh, way. Not yeah. in a good way. And I remember being up there when there was a demonstration by the workers at lunchtime. Yeah. And there were people coming past, just ordinary members of the public who were tooting their car horns and that sort of yeah. thing. But it was a time when people were really exercised. And yeah. I think they still are, aren't they? Well, I remember at the time. Uh, being horrified when I read it in your report. And I remember making a commitment to ensuring that this was as, as clearly publicly presented as possible. And I think you'd agree we, we had many conversations at that time, didn't we? And I was doing my best to be as open about what had happened as, 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 it could possi- as, as the council could possibly be. Um, I wasn't involved in, in the decision. I read it in the Western Mail, and when I discovered it, like the 42 other Labour councillors who didn't know, I was horrified, and the group was horrified. The, the decision process and, and the decision itself was undertaken in completely the wrong way, and it was ultimately the wrong decision. There was an argument put by the group that wrote a report for the council that said the council was at risk if it didn't address senior pay. So senior pay hadn't been addressed for some years. So there'd been a, a pay freeze at all levels, including the senior level. And the concern that was reported, and it's a legitimate concern, is that if you, as a council, a Philly council, pay below other neighbouring authorities, then it's likely you will lose those senior experienced staff to other local authorities. And the starkest example you can give is social services. So if you haven't got an experienced, competent, high-grade director of social services, um, you are putting your social services team at risk. So an example would be what happened in Haringey Council with baby Peter, that tragedy there was foremost in people's minds. And that if you aren't paying at a level that meets your competitors in the labour market, i.e. other councils, then you are losing people. And they did, did, council did lose a social services director. So there was an argument to address senior pay. And that argument is a rational argument. How they went about it was completely and utterly wrong, and the outcome also, I, I would argue, was utterly wrong. The meeting, as you say, met in private. The ca- councillors uh, who were not members of the committee did not know about it. The committee was constituted by the members of the Labour cabinet and the deputy leader of the Plaid Cymru group, and none of those people said anything about it until after your story had broken. 
you'll remember you attended the council when we had our Labour group meeting. You sat outside, it was, the meeting started at 5 o'clock and it finished at 10pm. The reason I got involved, I was secretary of the Labour group. Yes. And I gave you a statement at 10pm. Um, you haven't been sitting outside waiting for five hours. That meeting was a very important meeting and a long meeting and a difficult meeting. Labour councillors expressed concerns, very deeply, gravely held concerns that I've just expressed now. And it was agreed that the, the Labour group would apologise publicly for what had happened. And we did. And you carried that story the following day that the Labour group apologised. Now, I don't want to be party political about this, but I am still waiting for an apology from the Plaid Cymru group because they were involved too. And if they had raised concerns back in the September, we could have dealt with it then. And I don't think either the Labour leadership or the Plaid Cymru leadership, as opposed to backbench councillors, come out of this well. So the Labour leadership apologised, and then I was tasked, the secretary of the group, and with a working knowledge of HR practices, being a senior lecturer in HR, I was tasked with finding a way through. And the Labour group paid for legal advice. Uh, we paid ourselves for legal advice, and there was a, a cost to that. And I met with Geldart solicitors several times over the next uh, six weeks, over Christmas uh, into January, uh, to try and find a way through this. And one of the, the, the arguments was that that I put to the Galdart is, look, this decision wasn't taken with the agreement of the council. We need to challenge it. And we did. We had many difficult, many legal difficulties with challenging the decision, which you reported at the time. If you uh, wanted to go back to the old pay scales, you'd have to dismiss and re-engage officers. At that point, they could claim constructive dismissal and you'd end up in employment tribunals, which would blow costs way beyond the, the, the pay rises themselves. Um, you'd be in massive uh, financial difficulty, but more importantly, the council officers would be in dispute with councillors. And I think if you hadn't got to, if you tried that approach, you would end up a council being run like Anglesey at the time by commissioners. You'd have had commissioners brought in, and that would have taken the democratic process process completely away. So you had to find a way that was going to resolve the issue in a a, a manner that was um, uh, as consensual as it could be putting the thing back together. Sorry, am I going on a bit? No, not at all. But I mean, now, I mean, we're, we're more than six years down the line yeah. and we're still so, in a situation where the chief executive is not at work, yeah. where he's getting paid mm. for not doing anything and temperatures yeah. are still high so, within the borough. So, so, my, so my, my, what I tried to do back then was to tell the, the senior officers, including the chief executive, that the status quo was totally unacceptable, that it was huge public anger and that we would only do something that the unions would, would support, the unison particularly, but the other trade unions would support us in. And the chief executive agreed to go on to a spot salary that was, at the time he had a £21,000 pay increase, it was only then a £5,000 pay increase, £5,000 for one year, that was a spot salary that was going to remain in place for the duration of that council term. So he wouldn't see any incremental rise in his salary either. So that was fixed. And he agreed that. And I think that was a significant step which led some way to resolving the crisis. The other officers also took cuts. That was a significant step. Then he was arrested. And I remember, do you know how I found out he was arrested? I was in the gym on the running machine and you rang me. And you said, have you heard that Anthony O'Sullivan has been arrested by the police? And I nearly fell off the running machine when I was speaking to you on the phone. What had then happened was, I can't remember, he'd already been suspended or, or was suspended. I think he was suspended after he was arrested. Right, so he was suspended at that time. And the police, so a disciplinary investigation automatically began. And the police wrote to the committee and said, please 
suspend the investigation while the um, legal processes are going on. And that investigation was suspended for the best part of two and a half years for, for really no outcome at all because the court threw it out. But the council wasn't allowed to investigate while that police process was going on. But the trial collapsed yeah. in, uh, I think it was October 2015. Yeah. And we're a long, down, long way down yeah. the road from then, and it's so, still dragging on. So, so what the, pro, the process is cumbersome, and it's not effective. So disciplining senior officers is, is, a, is a process that's broken. Chief executive in particular. The, well, it's, the, it's three protected officers, the chief executive, the monitoring officer, and the finance officer. People give, give that kind of advice to the council. And the reason for it is to, so that if you had, God forbid, a rogue council leader who wanted to focus all the council's resources in his or her own council ward to get re-elected, and the chief executive said, you can't do that, the council leader couldn't then say to that chief executive, well, you're sacked, and I'm going to get someone more pliable in. That, that, that was why the rules are designed to, be, to make it difficult to sack, for the council themselves to sack a chief executive. You know, that's why the rules are designed that way. It used to be the case in England, and they changed it some years ago. The problem is you've got to appoint an investigator and the investigator's got to decide whether there's a case to answer. If that investigator decides there's a case to answer, then there's a further investigation and you appoint another independent investigator to carry out that investigation. You've got to find people to do it. It takes time. The investigation itself takes time because there's so many people to ask. There were at the point three officers involved in the investigation. All of that takes an inordinate amount of time, and it is taken out of the council's hands. The council have no control over the time. So what I want the government to do is to change the rules so that the council can do it in-house, do it properly, as you would with any other employee, a proper investigatory process. The First Minister has told me that he will do that, but he's got to wait until the Caffili investigation concludes before he will, and that's the advice he's had from his own legal team. I accept that, but we need to change the way it's done. Is there end in sight? Yeah, I think the report has been presented to the council. I've read uh, in the Caffili. All I've read is, is what I read in the Caffili Observer recently. The report's been presented to the council, so I would hope that I haven't had any meetings on it. I haven't been involved in, it, in any of this, but I would hope that uh, this this will be resolved. How it's going to be resolved, I wouldn't want to speculate on, but but you would expect it to be resolved in the public interest. How turning to a completely different subject, in a sense, have you found? the way politics is done in the Senate since you were elected. But a lot of people have said, oh, it's really aggressive and not very, not very nice. And Leanne Wood said to me, oh, I really don't like the way politics is, is in the Senate. To be honest with you, I find it quite robust, but actually a, a lot of the time quite consensual in, in the Senate chamber. You know, you get your flare-ups, and you get different personalities uh, bouncing off each other and, and shouting at each other during debates, but that's politics. That's how politics has always been done. But actually, when it comes to an issue that you're interested in, there's an awful lot of consensus and, and a desire cross-party to build a way forward. So today, Russell George asked a question about the community bank, directly to the First Minister. Um, you know, what's your view on a community bank? Well, we're doing that as part of the Economy Committee to see whether we should have or not a community bank. Russell's the chair of the committee, and we as a committee t- said it would be really helpful to ask a question in the chamber of the First Minister. That's good politics. That's, a, that's good politics. And I think scrutiny should always be uh, tough and, and you know you know better than anyone politics should always be tough scrutiny should always be tough and, and, and no holds barred you know we're asking difficult questions so I don't find that politics in the Senate chamber actually is is, is particularly you know in a bad shape 
Where do you stand on the issue of uh, more assembly members and changing the electoral system? Uh, absolutely. I, I, I think uh, the report that uh, Professor Laura McAllister came up, came up with, uh, with regard to single transferable vote and more assembly members, is the right one. Put it this way, if you're, I don't know why I always think of Ken Skates, but if you're Ken Skates standing in the assembly chamber about to announce a policy change, would you want more assembly members scrutinising that decision or fewer? And the answer, more. and well, it's in the public interest, isn't it? The more assembly members you've got asking questions, the better the levels of scrutiny. And the likelihood is if you use a single transferable vote system, those assembly members will be from a range of parties that are representative of public opinion at the election that was held. So it's absolutely the right thing to do. Do you think that there will be sufficient appetite within Welsh Labour to put that into the manifesto at the next election? I'm, I'm really hoping strongly that it will be a manifesto commitment and that it will be a manifesto commitment to be implemented within the next Assembly term, early in the, in, early in the term, yes. And, and, I, and I wouldn't want to see that being put to a referendum, because I strongly believe that referenda as a concept is alien to representative democracy and, and, and isn't the way to go about things. If it's in the manifesto, then you've got a political mandate to do it. So we would be talking about 2026 before this reform is actually brought in? Yeah, and, and I, the individual you know, me, who would like to see this change happen, is, is disappointed. But if you're going to go ahead with a change, I think you need to be upfront about it and say, we are going to do this change if you elect us. And nobody said at the last election, well, some parties were, were in favour of ZSTV, but nobody said this particular form of, uh, of constitutional change was going to happen because Laura McAllister only produced it in this term. So I think really, you know, it's, it's perfectly legitimate to say, well, let's wait until we've put it into a manifesto before we do it. But to answer your question, it, yes, it should be in the manifesto. There are those who say, and some of those who say have got a vested interest in saying it because they are from other parties, um, but some aren't, who say that Labour's been in power in Wales for 20 years. This is not sustainable democratically, and it would be good for Labour to be in opposition for a while. What's your reaction to that? We've never had a majority Labour government in Wales. We've never had a majority Labour government in Wales. It's always been some form of coalition or, or for a part of the time, minority. So Plaid Cymru have been in government. The Liberal Democrats have been and are in government. You know, we've always seen a, gov a coalition government of the left or a minority government of the left in Wales. I think the Labour values that I believe in social justice, particularly that aspect that's at the core of the Labour Party, are... are of a huge benefit to the people of Wales. But what I would say is you need an electoral system that reflects the views of the, of, of the broad spread of opinion in Wales. I haven't always been in favour of proportional representation. I remember one debate in the chamber where somebody was, was mentioning they were in favour of it, and I said, well, you know, if that had been the case and we'd had pure proportional system, very likely in the last term you would have had BNP assembly members. And this person said, they, they just shrugged their shoulders and said, well, yeah, that's the consequence of the system. You've got to persuade people not to vote for them. And looking at, you know, I don't count the Brexit party, actually, as, as ultra-right. You know, they've got a, a very centred view on the European Union. But the way UKIP has gone, they've gone far-right. And I think you have got far-right influences in the chamber now. But what we've got to do is beat them. And a proportional system, you can beat them just as easy as you can with, with any other system if you can win the argument. In fact, a truly proportional system puts, puts the onus on the politician to win that argument and also build consensus with other parties who have similar views. 
and accepted that, that you're going to be governing together with other parties. I'd always like to see a government, a Labour-led government of the left in Wales. I think that's where we are. But we've got to persuade people, and you can't take it for granted. And I think a proportional system would restore public's faith in that democracy to deliver. A lot of people in your constituency voted Leave yeah. and voted for the Brexit Party. Yeah, I completely understand. Why do you think they did it? Because there's a distance, there's a power distance between people and politics. There's a, there's a, a gap, particularly with the European Union. So we had a million pounds spent on Pengam Station to, to refurbish and rebuild and grow the car park so the cars weren't parking outside people's houses on terrorist streets. And I was knocking doors and people said, yep, it's great, the car park's brilliant. They said, European money, brilliant, yep. And I said, um, so uh, would you vote Remain? Nope, I'm voting Leave. Um, I met a group of trade unionists who trade unionists who were working for a multinational company and they, they, the multinational company owed its market to Europe. And, and I said, I imagine you're voting Remain. No, we're voting Leave. There are bigger issues than this. You know, people felt the distance. People feel the distance. One of the things that, that I'm trying to do every day is connect directly with people, you know, through Facebook, through social media, through knocking doors, through talking to people, through just being in the community. And that's the challenge. And people feel that power distance. And, and whether you like it or not, I think there is a, a democratic question about the European Union that is not answered properly. It isn't answered. There, there, is, there is an unarguable case to remain on economic grounds. And there's an unarguable case to remain on security grounds. But that's not what people are thinking about. They're thinking about the power distance and, you know, in, in different terms, democracy. But I suppose the worry is that there are people who are manipulating democracy in order to lead them like the Pied Piper up a very yeah. dark alley. Well, you know, that, that's pretty much what, what Nigel Farage is, is doing. He's got nothing to lose from leaving the European Union. And the people on the Brexit party benches, you know, they, they don't have anything to lose. I actually think Mark Reckless is absolutely focused on leaving the European Union. That, that it, it, it sees the institution as, as, as something that is damaging to, to the fabric of society. Now, I don't agree with that. Uh, but that's what they fundamentally believe. And when you, when you are so fundamentalist about one particular view then it blocks up everything else and all other tactics then to those people are justified. And I'm not, I've mentioned Mark Reckless, I don't particularly mean Mark Reckless, but particularly activists around that party. I've seen it with Welsh independence too. People who are absolutely committed to Welsh independence. Everything else is blocked out to an extent that anyone who doesn't believe or agree or has questions about it um, is, is utterly wrong. You've come in for a bit of stick, haven't you, on social yeah. media? Yep. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a pragmatist. I, I'm not. I'm not in any way a nationalist. And and if the union, you know, what people call me, they, using the word unionist as an insult. Well, the European Union is a union of an economic union, and the United Kingdom is an economic union. And if it functions, then it should be allowed to function. My view is, if you can produce an argument that the economy of Wales would be better as a result of leaving the Union of the United Kingdom, then it's an argument that should be made and should be made robustly. But I haven't seen that argument developed well anywhere. And if you could tell someone who lives in my community, you know, in Barbados or in Ashramana, if you leave the Union of the United Kingdom, in the same way we leave the European Union, if you leave the Union of the United Kingdom, you'll be better off next month, you'll be better off tomorrow, very soon then there's an argument to be made. I'm yet to see that argument, and that's at the heart of it for me. 
Because there's a lot of other baggage involved, isn't there? All this um, uh, imperial nostalgia. Yeah, and, and I stuff. think, you know, we live in an uncertain world and I don't think that wrapping yourself more snugly in a flag is, is going to make life better for anyone. You know, it's not about the flag. It's not about the, the, the you know, the, the feeling of, of, of patriotism, which is fantastic. But it isn't about that kind of saving, saving society. It's about hard economic choices. And if those choices are the right ones, then make an argument for it. Kevin David, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.